Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 27. Yet another Otto, the third. In the last episode, we were surprised by the untimely death of Otto II. His four-year-old son, also called Otto, now Otto III, inherited the empire under the regency of his mother, the Byzantine princess Theophanu, or Theophania, and his grandmother, Adelaide of Italy. The boy was crowned king of Germany in the year of his father's death, 983, and his two regents did quite a good job holding the empire together, which meant keeping the eastern, northern and western borders of the empire secure, as well as managing the German and Italian nobles. Theophany in particular was a strong-willed, ambitious and authoritative imperatrix. She would nominate bishops and convene synods and, despite the insistence of those around her, refused to remarry, going daily to the tomb of Otto II to pray. We said that the regents had things more or less under control, but that doesn't mean they had things easy. Let's start with what we could call the Pope check. Just before his death, Otto II had managed to place John XIV on the throne of St. Peter, Giovanni XIV. Obviously, as soon as he was out of the picture, the anti-Pope Boniface VII popped back up again and imprisoned John, who later died while incarcerated, either from starvation or from poison. It seems that the Eastern Emperor Basilius or Basileus II may have had a hand in Boniface's return to power. However, Boniface was also assassinated in 985. I'll bet that even with your wildest guesses, you'll never get the name of the next Pope. Are you thinking? Shall I tell you? That's right. John the Fifteenth took the place of Boniface VII. If you're getting a little bit worried about the Pope's always been called John, and perhaps reaching Pope John the, for example, 234th at a certain point, the good news is they stopped with all the Johns for quite a while and only ended up getting to John the 23rd in the 20th century. It must be said at this time that the real power in the city of Rome lay with the powerful Crescenzi family. We mentioned last time that the Crescenzi had married into the Tuscolo family, who had held power in Rome over the first part of the 10th century with Marozia and later her son Alberic of Rome. Now, the head of the family was the originally named Crescenzio, making him Crescenzio Crescenzi, a bit like John Johnson or Jack Jackson. Not only that, but his father had had the same name, so we'll have to call this one Crescenzio II. When Theophania finally left Rome to go and join her mother-in-law Adelaide, with whom she had been reconciled, the Crescenzi were free to exercise power over the city. 
Having said this, they were a bit more politically savvy than the other Roman nobles had been in the past, and they went about setting up a local autonomous power at the same time, trying to strike a balance between the local entity and the empire, keeping in Empress Theophania's good books, to the point that she made Crescenzio II Count of Terracina on the southern border of the Papal States. He also brought his brother, who would you believe it was called Giovanni, into the picture, and he was made patrician in 986. They were left to it for a while, and in the meantime, Theophania died in 991. It seems that when she died, Adelaide expressed relief that that Greek woman had gone. If this is true, it makes the supposed reconciliation between the two. Either short-lived or not particularly sincere. Adelaide continued with the regency, and finally, in 995, at the age of 15, Otto III was crowned emperor, thanks to the work that his mother and his grandmother had done. By now, the Crescenzi had been exercising full power over Rome for over a decade, and were feeling quite confident. So confident, in fact, that they got rid of John the Fifteenth. Who sought refuge with Count Hugo of Tuscany? There, he sent to Otto the Third for help, and the emperor made his way down in 996, now aged 17. Unfortunately for Pope John the Fifteenth, the emperor was too late to help him because John had died in the meantime. So, instead of putting an old pope back on the throne, he came along with a new pope. The man was Bruno. Cousin of Otto the Third, who had also been his personal chaplain, before becoming Bishop of Ravenna, he took the name of Gregory the Fifth, and was the first fully German pope to hold the title. Otto and his new pope entered the city, and Crescentia was exiled. But Gregory, soon after, had to give in to the pressure of the Crescentia family and pardon him. As a thank you, when Crescenzio re-entered the city, he had the Pope sent away. Now it was time once again to substitute the Pope nominated by the Emperor with one nominated by the noble families of Rome. We've had quite a lot of this over the last few episodes, and you may be tempted to launch your podcast player out of the window in frustration, but do not despair. Simply keep in mind that in the struggle. Of the Holy Roman Emperors to consolidate their hold over Italy, there was quite a lot of toing and froing with popes. Now, Crescenzo II once again demonstrated his political acumen with his choice for the next pope. He chose Giovanni, who else? Filagato. It goes without saying that he took the name of Giovanni the Sixteenth. This man had been counselor to Otto II and Theophania, who had made him head abbot at the important monastery of Nonantola in the province of Modena, where Ferraris are made these days, and then bishop of Piacenza. Therefore, he was an imperial man. Furthermore, he had been ambassador for the same Otto III to Constantinople, so he was also in with the current emperor. And well liked by the Eastern Emperor, this was once again an attempt to balance the local power in Rome 
with the international scene of the two great Roman empires of the time. It seemed like a good choice on paper, but Otto III was having none of it. In 998, Otto came back down to Rome. Pope John XVI was deposed, mutilated, and sent to live out his days in a monastery. Crescenzio II wasn't giving up that easily. He holed up in Castel Sant'Angelo. Otto laid siege to the castle and was only able to get in on the 29th of April after building a giant battering ram. Crescenzio II was beheaded, his body thrown from the high parapet, and the unrecognizable corpse was paraded through the streets to the jeers of the populace and finally strung up on Monte Mario. His followers and supporters were also violently repressed, and his widow, Stefania, who was captured along with her husband, became the lover of Otto III. After all of this, Otto III felt guilty about the way he had acted and decided to go on a penitential pilgrimage to the Gargano, where a future saint called Adalbert had set up a sort of religious community. The Gargano is a little peninsula at the very northern part of the Puglia region. Basically, if you look at a map, you find it north of the heel of the boot that is Italy. It's sort of like a little spur for the boot. Anyway, in this period, it was quite a well-known destination of pilgrimage and penitence, and that's where Otto went, dressed as a simple friar. When he got there, he knelt in front of Adalbert, took out the crown that he had been hiding on his person, and in tears offered it to the saint, and begged him to go back to Rome with him. Meanwhile, Otto's old friend and cousin Gregory V had died, possibly from poison or from a heart attack, on the 18th of February, 999. This loss deeply saddened the emperor, who wept at the news. However, the show had to go on, and a new pope was needed. Otto III had big plans for an empire that would represent as much of Christendom as possible, and, for that, he needed to bring out the big guns when it came to choosing the Pope. And so, the choice fell on Gerbert of Biliac, who took the name of Sylvester II. The name itself was an important choice, because Sylvester I had been the Pope who had collaborated with the great Emperor Constantine. Otto had been greatly impressed with Gerbert's vast culture, that spanned from religious issues to science and mass. He seemed like the right man for Otto's whole new super-Roman Empire project, and now Sylvester II was fully on board, encouraging the emperor with adulation, even telling him that he was the reincarnation of Charlemagne himself. Indeed, in this period, Otto, actually opened the tomb of the great Carolingian monarch. Legend has it that they found old Charlie sitting up, his body untouched by decay and still holding his scepter. His nails had broken through his gloves and so they gave them a little trim as well as putting back a piece of his nose. With the zombie manicure and rhinoplasty done, they sealed the tomb back up 
and left it again. Feeling he was important enough to violate the rest of the great Charlemagne was not all. When he was crowned emperor, Otto used the following title. Are you ready? Romanus Saxonicus et Italicus Apostolorum Servus Servus Jesu Christi et Romanorum Imperator Augustus Secundum Voluntatem Dei Roman, Saxon and, let's say, Italian, although Italicus is not actually the correct translation of Italian, but sort of inhabitant of the Italic Peninsula. Serve of the Apostles, Serve of Jesus Christ, and Emperor of the Romans, Augustus, according to the will of God. Notice in particular the word Augustus. He was really going full-blown ancient Roman Empire. Indeed, he loved Italy and would miss it every time he had to go back to Germany. He set Rome as the new imperial capital, creating a palace on the Aventine Hill. But he didn't have a fetish just for the Roman Roman Empire. He also had a whole Byzantine thing going on. Let's not forget, his mother was a Byzantine princess. He dressed in Byzantine style. He ate alone on a raised platform and got Roman nobles to serve him. He would surround himself with eunuchs. Everyone that came into his presence would have to kiss his feet, then his knees, and finally his mouth, after bowing three times. The only person who was exempt from this was Saint Adalbert. He spoke Latin and Greek, which he made the official languages of the empire, and he loved to read and quote the classics, although apparently his quotes were not always suitable to the situation. It seemed that even the waiters and cooks would read up on the classics to quote them in his presence to butter him up. On the other hand, Otto III wasn't just pomp and circumstance. He was also very pious. We have seen how his regret over the treatment of Crescentio II led him to his pilgrimage of penitence, and he would also fast during Lent and wear a cilis in the same period. This was a garment made of coarse cloth that would irritate the skin, a form of self-mortification and penitence. Otto hoped with Sylvester II to introduce a rinnovatio imperi, a rebirth of a great empire, based not only on military strength, but also on culture. Unfortunately, he had to deal with the reality of the Italian political situation, which had very little interest in a great European empire. The first rebellion he had to deal with was that of Arduino of Ivrea in 999. Then, in 1001, the governor of Tivoli, northeast of Rome, was killed by rebels, and Otto went over to put down the rebellion. Before leaving, he promised that he would hand the beautiful Villa Adriana, the palace built by the Roman Emperor Hadrian, to the Romans. In the end, Otto liked it so much that he decided to keep the villa for himself. This broken promise enraged the Romans who laid siege to the imperial palace on the Aventine Hill. Once Otto had secured the defences, he went up onto the high parapets and scolded the Romans, telling them how ungrateful they were 
considering that he had raised their city to the capital of the empire. He then pointed out the leaders of the mob and laid the blame upon them. He must have been pretty convincing because the mob then turned on its leaders and tore them apart. This was not the end of the troubles, though. Things continued to boil, and with a new rebellion, Otto was forced to leave the city, to go to Ravenna, where he went to pray in the important monastery of Classe. In his absence in Rome, Gregorio of Tuscolo, thank goodness he wasn't called Crescenzio or Giovanni, took power and sent all of the pro-German faction away. News now reached the emperor that the German nobles were not happy with him and rebellion was fermenting there as well. He now had to put all of his energy into getting Rome back under control and then rush back up and take care of things in Germany. He awaited reinforcements in Todi, south of Perugia, and when they arrived, they started the march down to Rome. They stopped at Civita Castellana, south of Viterbo on the slope of the Soratte mountain. Emperor Otto III went no further, but it was here that on the 23rd of January, 1002, at only 22 years of age, he died. The cause was either smallpox or, a legend would have it, he was killed by Stefania, the widow of Crescenzio II, who wrapped him up in a deerskin soaked in poison. His dream of a rinnovato imperi, of the foundation of a new great empire of Christendom, had failed. The following year, the other promoter of that great empire, Pope Sylvester II, also died on the 12th of May, 1003. The dream would have required not only military power and political organization, but a widespread cultural renaissance, and that just wasn't going to happen for a while. We'll stop there for the moment, also because we sneakily crossed a line without mentioning it, that of the year 1000. This is a perfect time for another recap episode, so next time we're going to go over episodes 14 to 27. Then we'll do an episode on medieval life for the average Joe. After that, we'll be back to our progression, because something new had been happening in Italy that will make it different from anywhere else in Europe. So keep listening. As always, thank you very much for listening to everyone. Thanks in particular to our regular Patreon supporters, Sen, Shelby, Benjamin, Sean, Roberta, and to our new Patreon supporter, Preston. Thank you very much to all of you for making this show possible and allowing us to continue. Remember that you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com You can also, on that website, ahistoryofitaly.com, click through to our social media, so, for example, Facebook and YouTube, and you can take a look at our timeline, lists of rulers and maps to help navigate our complicated history. Once again, thank you very much, and until next time, Arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.